www.netivyah.org. The Basics of Faith, a five-part series recorded February 1994 in North Atlanta Church of Christ, part four of five. Actually, I want to continue today and tomorrow with more of some of these basic blocks of faith that we uh, need to reiterate over and over again, and it's never enough. And what I'd like to talk to today, I want to start from a passage from Jeremiah chapter 23 that is very fascinating text. Jeremiah 23 verse 5 to 7. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Now if you take this text, and compare it with Jeremiah chapter 33 verses 16 and 17 you'll see something fascinating almost word for word the same text with one difference I'm going to read Jeremiah 33 verse 16 and 17 in those days Judah shall be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. It's almost the same text, except in Jeremiah 23, it is applied to the Messiah, the son of David. In Jeremiah 33, it is applied to the city of Jerusalem. But that I'm bringing only as a curiosity. It is interesting that in Jeremiah 23, the Messiah, the son of David, the righteous branch of David, of whom Isaiah the prophet speaks again in chapter 9 and in other places, is called, first of all, it's called the righteous branch, and then it's called he, will, he said that he will do justice and righteousness in the land and then he's called the Lord literally in Hebrew Jehovah our righteousness this, this idea of <coughs> the Messiah being the Lord our righteousness or the Lord of righteousness the righteous branch of David and that he will do justice and righteousness in the land is very very important and if you start looking up the word righteousness and justice in the New Testament you would be surprised what a major theme that is in the New Testament followers and disciples of Jesus Christ have a command a mandate first of all to be righteous and then to do righteousness 
in the world. The church is not just a religious institution. That may be new to them because we have separated and said the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom, but that spirituality of the kingdom of God has to be felt here on earth. It cannot be left in heaven. It is not in heaven. It is on earth. And as Christians, we have to be ambassadors of righteousness in this world. Let me give you some text from the New Testament, just so that you will be aware. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Yeah. Now this, this is very important. What is, what is the word righteousness imply? Right standing. Right standing. The knowledge that you are right and that you are fighting for right. Now it's interesting that the word righteousness in the Hebrew language and in the Arabic language and in all the Semitic languages, its basic connotation is straight. Straight on. And in a world in which crooked is considered holy, to be righteous is very, very important. Are you righteous? As as followers of Jesus Christ, are you righteous? Yes. How did you become righteous? Through Jesus. We have inherited through grace, his righteousness, right? But this inheritance of his righteousness into our life makes us righteous. Not self-righteous, we've got too many of those. But makes us righteous. And we ought to have the awareness of righteousness into our life because if we don't have that awareness, we are not going to be able to live righteous lives and do righteous deeds and, and, and hunger and thirst for righteousness and seek the righteousness of God to be manifest in this world. This is very important. Let's look at in the same chapter, in Matthew 5, there is two more mentions of righteousness. First one, after verse 6, is in Matthew 5.10. Matthew 5.10. And it says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For the sake of being right. And that is very important. It's important to be humble and to be meek. But it is also very important to live with the feeling that you are right. That you are righteous. And that when you suffer, that you're not suffering because of some stupid mistake you made or because of your sinfulness or because of somebody else's stupid mistake. 
Not that you are suffering because you are right. And that gives tremendous power to the individual. You know, if he waffles on the issue, if he is right or wrong, in his faith in God and in the Messiah, he is weak and he will not stand for righteousness. The church has a responsibility toward righteousness. In verse 20, Jesus says, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. It's a very important aspect, folks, and I don't want to offend anybody or to embarrass anybody or to step on anybody's toes, but this is a basic building block of faith. The assurance in yourself, in the depths of your heart, that your faith, your relationship to God, your walk in the life is righteous. It's not maybe, it's not if, it is righteous. Not by your deeds, but by the deeds which God did in history through His Son, Jesus of Nazareth. By his righteousness, we have become righteous. But that puts a monkey on our back. And that is the, the, the pursuit of righteousness. In practical terms, folks, the church sins as a whole, especially here in the South. When there were righteous causes and we filled our mouth with water and did not speak, and if we spoke and opened our mouth, we were on the side of unrighteousness most of the time. I was a student in 19, between 1962 to 1964 in, in, in Valdosta, Georgia. Yeah. And I saw the church. I heard it from the pulpit say, we are not mixing in politics. It's not our job to mix in politics. But when Kennedy ran for, for president, the same preacher who said that we are a spiritual kingdom and we don't mix in politics said, are you going to vote and put a Catholic in the White House? Yeah? But they don't mix in politics. Yeah? And I'll tell you a story. I was riding with a preacher from Miami going toward Kentucky. We left Sunday after church in 1964, after church, we left my, uh, Sunday morning from Miami, and we knew that we would arrive in time for church to Dasher. Yeah. And we stopped to eat in Orlando. We called the preacher in Dasher, Georgia. He's dead, may God bless his soul. And the man that I was driving, he was white preacher born and raised in southern Kentucky, yeah, Elmer Morgan, for those that, that know him. And he put on a, a very thick black accent. And he said to the preacher, we are from Jacksonville, Florida, from the NNACP, and we'd like to come and visit your church. It was right after the Civil Rights Bill was passed. Well. We drive up to the church 10 till 6, 
services were supposed to be at 6 o'clock. The lights are off. The preacher and the elders are standing in front of the church. The lights are off. The preacher and the elders are standing in front of the church. And we drive with Elmer. We park the car in front of Elmer and says, what's going on? He says, you don't know what happened. So what happened? He said, we got a call today that a bunch of people are coming from Jacksonville, Florida, from an NNACP to inspect our church. So we decided we'd dismiss the search. (laughs) This is a true story. Can be checked. I'll give you the number of Elmer Morgan. (laughs) And, And this is a fact. The church did not stand for righteousness. It didn't stand for righteousness during the Holocaust years. When there were millions of people being killed because of race and color. Gypsies and Jews and blacks and, and... The church has got... If, we, if the church is going to be the church of Jesus Christ, yeah, it's got to learn to stand for righteousness, not only inside the congregation, because God is not only a God of the church, He's the God of the whole world, but for righteousness in the world. And you may feel that you're insignificant. <coughs> as individuals and as local congregations. But I guarantee you that if you stand for righteousness, your voice will be heard. And the fact that the voice of the Christian communities is not heard in the world is only an indication that we don't stand for much in our world. We allow the lesbians and the homos and, and everybody else to catch the world's attention. But we are not speaking in the name of the Messiah so that the world will know that we exist. If not, to talk about Jesus existing at all. And this is a biblical principle to stand for righteousness. Very, very important. Notice one of the famous quotations of the Old Testament in the New Testament that appears probably many times in the New Testament. I didn't count this morning. I didn't have time. But the just shall live by faith. Where is it taken from? Habakkuk. Very, very important. Open there in Habakkuk, those of you that have Bible. Chapter 2. We forget that this is not an invention of the Apostle Paul. That this, the just shall live by faith, is not an invention from the Apostle Paul. You want to study your Bible better, folks? When you see a quotation of the Old Testament and the New Testament, take the time and read it in its own context in the Old Testament. Your life and your knowledge and relationship with the Bible will increase greatly. Somebody has opened it up, read from verse 1 to verse 4 of Habakkuk 2. I will stand on my guard <coughs> and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me, and how I may reply when I am reproved. 
Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision when you describe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time, the ancient towards the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarry, wait for it, for it will certainly come, it will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Now, notice the context. What is the context of this statement, the righteous will live by faith? Yeah. The context is that the prophet is standing in his post. And that imagery that oftentimes appears in the 8th century prophet. In Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the prophet is standing a guard on the wall. And of course the instruction is to the prophet that if he sees the enemy coming and he warns the city, he has done his job. But if he sees the enemy coming and he keeps quiet, it will be required of him. So the prophet in this case, Habakkuk, is standing at his post. What is he doing at his post? Yeah? On the rampart of the wall. He's keeping watch, waiting to see what his master, God, will tell him. That's the job of the prophet. He's waiting for instructions from the captain. And when he hears the instructions, he will reply and reprove. Correct. Send the message on down the line. And this is the instruction that he gets. Record the vision. Inscribe it on tablets so that one who reads it may run. Run here doesn't mean to run in the country club on the track. But if he run with the vision, that he'll make it work. That he'll put it to an effective use with the instructions that he gets. And this is the vision. There is an appointed time. God has set an appointed time in which he will judge the whole world. And that time is set. Even though you and I don't know it, and nobody else knows it, even Jesus doesn't know it. Because he said that, that he doesn't know it. The angels don't know it. But God has said, the Father has set an appointed time. And that appointed time is hastened toward the goal and it will not fail. There is a conflict between the first half of the verse and the second half of the verse. The same conflict appears in Isaiah chapter 60, the last verse. It is appointed time, I will hasten. Exactly the same word. But you say, how could it be? It is appointed time, I will hasten. If you can hasten it, it implies that there is no appointed time. If there is appointed time, how can, it, can you speed it up? To hasten it means to put on the gas and to speed it up. Right? And this is how the rabbis interpret it. It says, if we do what is right, God will hasten the coming of the Messiah. But if we don't do what is right, there is an appointed time from which no one can escape. The time is set. The clock is ticking. But the church has the ability 
to hate the redemption of the world by what we do. And the response to that, the Prophet says, the, the call is the just shall live by faith. Yeah? It doesn't say that if you have faith, you're automatically just. But it means that if you are going to be just, you have to live by this faith that there is an appointed time. That ties me to Friday's lesson. That there is a judgment day. And that, that the crooks of the world will face. There will nobody's going to get by with anything. Every criminal will get his just retribution. And every faithful servant of God will get his right reward. That's essential. But the just, while they're alive, will live by faith. Because we'll never see justice with our eyes done in this world until the judgment day. But we still are commanded to pursue it. We can't fill our mouth with water and shut up about the unjust things that are happening in the world. I sometimes, how should I say, my conscience strikes me when I see injustice in the world. I lose sleep over Bosnia. Even though the Bosnians are Muslim, they're human beings. And where, where else can Christians show better charity than to their enemies? We, we must voice, even if you don't have money, even if you cannot send tons and tons of food over there, at least speak out against the justices of the world. Amen. Write a letter to the United Nations. Let somebody know that you care. That's all God wants from you. He's not asking you to go and volunteer there in the Bosnian army, but at least let somebody know that you care about what's happening in your world and you don't have to go to Bosnia. There's plenty of issues or opportunities to be righteous in this world, in your own community, and to fight for that which is right. And we've got to learn it that we have responsibility as a church. Yeah? You want, the you want your church to grow? Let the community know that you stand for something. Yeah. <clears throat> but the message that is coming out of most of the Protestant and evangelical churches is, oh, the good time religion. Yeah. If you come, give your money, God will bless you, you'll have no problems, you know, everything will be fine, we'll have a wonderful, entertaining and an uplifting time. That's the message. You have a wonderful time if you go to church. Folks, the world doesn't want to hear that anymore. That's a message that has spread more selfishness in the name of Christianity than any dedication to God or to righteousness. Now, a couple more verses about righteousness from the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3. 
verse 21 to 26. If somebody's died, read it. <laughs> and now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, in which the law can probably testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all his sins, all can fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. All right. Now, we read in verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Somebody have a different version? That's not what the text says. And that's why a lot of Christians misunderstand this whole concept of righteousness and Jesus Christ. What the text literally says is through the faith of Jesus Christ, like in Galatians 3.26. Yeah? This is a rare Greek construction that is called the subjective genesis. We are not achieving righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. We are achieving righteousness through the faith of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ who achieved the righteousness. And through his faith, or through his trust in God, through his faithfulness to God, through his standing up with God, he has achieved righteousness. And we, it's a continuation of the text, I don't have time to analyze the text word for word with you. But if you read through verse 26, you'll find out that we are attached to that righteousness that Jesus Christ has achieved. And the interesting, the most interesting aspect of this text, and the reason I really brought it, is what it says in verse 21. <coughs> Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest, being witnessed by the law and by the prophets. In other words, that righteousness of God is seen in what you call the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. And where is he referring to? What does Paul have in mind? You want to know what Paul has in mind? Do you know why Paul says that that righteousness of God that is seen in Jesus Christ is taken from the Old Testament. He has in mind two chapters in the book of Ezekiel. We don't have time. You can read the chapters for yourself. But I want somebody to read Ezekiel chapter 33 verses 12 to 18. Ezekiel 33, 12 to 18. Or Ezekiel 18, 20 to 26. You choose. Anybody got it? Sister, you got it? Read. Uh -huh. 18, okay, 20 to 26. Go ahead. 
stronger thing is the one who dies. The son will not share the guilt of the father. No, the father share the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against him. But if a wicked man turns away from all the sins he has committed, and keeps all my decrees, and does what is just and right, he will surely live. He will not die. None of the offenses he has committed will be remembered against him. Because of the righteous things he has done, he will live. Do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked because of the sovereign Lord, the pleasant sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from him their way and live? Alright. If you continue reading, you see that the opposite is also true. That if a person has been righteous all of his life, and he does something unrighteous in the end of his life, all the righteousness that he did will count for nothing. Yeah. He will be condemned. Yeah. Now that's where grace and what Paul has in mind in a lot of the chapters of of his teaching in the book of Romans. He is talking about that righteousness that Jesus Christ lived up according to God's highest concept of what is right and wrong. And because he was able to do so, we, being attached to him, receiving his character, his nature, his spirit to dwell in us, also get the ability to be righteous like he does. Not so that we can boast in our own righteousness, but that we can boast in the righteousness of God that is demonstrated in Jesus Christ. But so that we can live by righteous standards. Yeah? That after we have been justified, open uh, Ephesians 2.10, after we have been justified by his sacrifice, by his blood, we are not supposed to only sit in church and praise him and give of our money and break bread and sing and listen to a sermon. That's not the purpose of Christian life. The purpose of Christian life is to do the righteous acts of God. Amen. That's it. It's not to go to work. You know, we have made Christianity a religion of, of, of meetings. We go from one meeting to another meeting. Yeah? And we think that the, the more meetings we go, the holier we'll become. Yeah? And some people even think, some Christians even think, the more pork you eat, the holier you become. <laughs> and that, that's true. One is, about, one is about as effective as the other to make you holier. It doesn't work. The church has got to stand up and count for something in this world, for that which is right and godly and holy. And it's got to let its voice be heard. We've got to get out of the religious mode and get into the mode of life Amen. and living. And, and, you know, in my opinion, this is very, very important. One more passage in Romans 6, 20 to 23. 
So when we were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You're out of the control of righteousness. That's what it really means. When you were slaves to sin, you're out of the control. You are free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things that you are now ashamed of? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification. And the outcome is eternal life. Now if you take verse 21, verse 1, and, and compare it with verse 22, you will see that what happens is that before, while you were living under sin, you were free in regards of righteousness. Or, one of the other translations says, you're out of the control of righteousness. You were not being controlled by, by righteousness. But the implication is that now in Jesus Christ, having yourself forgiven, having died in baptism, the beginning of chapter 6, it, having died and been buried with him, you have raised into a new life. That new life is supposed to be controlled by righteousness according to these verses. Not like you were before while you were in sin. Now that you are no longer in sin, then you are under the control of righteousness. You are enslaved to righteous causes. And that, in my opinion, is a basic building block of faith. People don't grow in their faith because they don't exercise their faith other than in the meetings. In the meetings, the church meets, then we exercise faith. Yeah. But in the world, in our job, we don't exercise faith and we don't exercise righteousness. The church and Christian folks want to build their faith, use that muscle which you have gained through Jesus Christ, the ability to know right from wrong. This is what the mature person does according to Hebrews 6. The children don't know right from wrong. The mature person, according to Hebrews, the end of chapter 5, is the person who knows good from evil. And if you know good from evil, for those that know to do good and don't do it, it's a sin. You know, we've concentrated so much on the sins of commission that we have forgotten that there is a whole family of sins, of omission. Amen. And I urge you, dear brethren, that we don't forget the sins of omission. And don't forget to live for the sake of God's Righteousness. I'm going to give you a few minutes to ask questions. I said too much. Yes. Yes, Don. My, my translation said the holiness in Romans 6. Instead of righteousness. Yeah. Had holiness. Well, holiness is not the same thing as righteousness. But I've often found uh, places in the different translations where the different Protestant prejudices have colored the translators. I can give you many, many examples of this. 
For example, the word gospel doesn't appear in the Old Testament in English. Even though the word evangelium appears five times in the Septuagint. Yeah. It appears five times, but it's translated good tidings or some other strange translation on purpose. Because the translators didn't want you to find the word gospel or good news in the Old Testament. The phrase grace and truth appears in John 1.17. Right? The law was given through Moses and grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Appears only one time in the New Testament. In the Old Testament it appears 24 times. But you will never find it translated grace and truth. Yeah? Because they didn't want you to think that grace and truth was in the Old Testament. So they translated the same Greek and Hebrew phrase as graciousness and truthfulness, as veracity and goodness, any other synonym word that they could find in order to throw you off the mark. <clears throat> That's a fact. And I have more, many more of these. Yes. Other questions? Yes, ma'am. Angels. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, first of all, there are angels. Yeah? And when I talk about angels, I always rem remember Roberta Flack. Roberta Flack had a song in Spanish. And the name of the song is Painter. Anybody know it? It says, Pintor, ¿Por qué no haces angelitos pretos? Todos los angelitos son blancos. Huh? Which means, Painter, why don't I ever see you paint black angels? All the angels are white. Yeah? That you see in any of the paintings. Uh, now, the, my point is, angels do exist. The Bible speaks about angels and it gives us a description of what their job is both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. One of the things that it says is angels are ministering spirits. And we find that out from Jacob's vision. Yeah. That they are there to serve Jacob. The angels are going up and down to serve Jacob and to accompany him on his journey. That's the myth. The, the, the meaning of that vision that Jacob saw. They're going up and down to communicate his will to the Father, to God. And, of course, angels appear to people like Abraham, like Samson's mother, to bring news, to take requests, and to intervene on behalf of for example, an angel intervened on behalf of a jackass in Balaam's story, right? And uh, they're very real. And oftentimes, most of the time in the Bible, they appear just like regular human beings. 
they don't have angels, you know, and they don't have horns. A regular human being. Can you imagine that young girl, Samson's mother, sitting in the field and all of a sudden she has an ex experience of the third kind? <laughs> I mean, she'd run away. That Jewish girl wouldn't hang there five seconds. I mean, she'd be taken off in her rebuff. <laughs> the reason she didn't run away is because that angel appeared to her absolutely not. And he delivered to her a message that she's going to have a child and the child will be a Nazarite. Yeah? And so she went to her husband and told him that a man came and that's what she said. A man came and told me these things. And her husband being a good Jewish husband and said, Woman, you're crazy. If you got any message, tell the guy to come and talk to me. <laughs> that's what he told her. <laughs> And so the angel was very understanding. He wasn't there, but he heard what that man said, what Manoah said. And so the angel came back and talked to the man and told him the exact same thing that he told his wife earlier. And that's how Samson was born. And that angel in the end, that Manoah and his wife were so thankful and so praising God they decided to, you know, cook a goat, a kid, in the honor of this angel. And what happened? The angel went up in the flames into heaven, which showed that he was not a regular human being. But when he appeared to Samson's father and mother, he appeared as a normal human being. Right? That's why the book of Hebrews says some have entertained angels unaware. Yeah? And I'll tell you, this teaching scares me to death. <laughs> why does it scare me to death? Because sometimes when I see some beggar in the street, I don't know if he's not an angel that was sent there to test me and to find out if I am charitable or not. And I feel convicted when I feel strangers. Maybe this is somebody that God has put in my path to see if I'm faithful or unfaithful. And it forces me to seek righteousness and to pursue it. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. No, not in the Bible. Angels are angels. Yeah? And, and they, when people die biblically, they don't become angels. They go to the grave and they wait for the resurrection and the judgment day. That's what they do. They don't become ghosts and they don't become angels. They go to rest until somebody bothers them. And it is possible, human beings, through witchcraft and other things, have ability to bother the dead and to bear the consequences. Now these are not ghosts. These are dead souls waiting for the judgment day. But there are, there, you know, witchcraft and their cult have ability of reaching into the world of the dead and that's biblical. We have the story of the witch of Endor 
and other things in which things like that do happen and can happen even today. But we, as faithful and godly children of God, have no right to delve in these areas but we are to stay away from them because they are bordering on idolatry. Thank you. Nativia, www.netivyah.org.